0: We be Hi everyone, Kristen Walker here with my co-host Dave Ballenberger for our mental health business show. Hi Dave. Hey Kristen, how are you doing today? I'm good, I'm good. I'm excited about this show because I've heard great things about our guest. Uh, Mike Boylan joins us and he is the CEO of Crisis Preparation and Recovery, which is in Arizona, and he's also a licensed clinical social worker. So Mike, thank you so much for coming on the show.
1: Thank you both, uh, Kristen and Dave. Glad to be here with you both.
0: Absolutely. Tell our listeners a little bit about um, Crisis Prep and Recovery, just so that you know those therapists and so on that are listening in know what you guys do and what you're about.
1: Yes, Kristen. Crisis Preparation and Recovery is um, a mental health organization based in Tempe, Arizona, And we provide a range of services, uh, including crisis mental health, outpatient services, and specific evaluation services for uh, all age groups, including individuals uh, that are covered through the Medicaid system and private insurances.
0: Fantastic. And today, Dave, I know you specifically wanted to bring Mike on. So what did you want to cover today on, on the show?
2: Well, whenever I go anyplace and talk about value-based payment, I always bring up Arizona and I always bring up crisis prep because I talk to Mike often and I hear about um, some of the struggles he's going through in terms of dealing with multiple insurance companies and just how payment is being made. So, Mike, if you could just kind of tell us a little bit about what your experience has been so far.
1: Absolutely, Dave. We um, Just to give folks... Um, a little bit of the history here in Arizona. We recently, as of October first, twenty eighteen, have moved to a different payment model in the state Medicaid system. Uh, we historically, for uh, since the inception of the Medicaid system here. Um, have worked through a behavioral health carved-out model, um, meaning that most behavioral health agencies work specifically uh, with one one entity, for the most part, for the majority of their public Medicaid dollars. And that system had been in place for uh, several decades. And so, as you can imagine, behavioral health entities uh, became very... um, uh, used to that model uh, kind of built their uh, businesses uh, with uh, those funding streams in mind and then the the um, the Medicaid system uh, made had been planning for a major change to uh, a model that really brings in a kind of more of an integrative approach and the the thinking being that if the physical health side uh, and the mental health or behavioral health side were on the same page including the funding streams that there could be significant improvements in overall health for the for the Medicaid population that all of our, our provider organizations are serving. So that, that provides Dave and Kristen just a backdrop of some of the changes that occurred. We in Arizona went really from working with one entity One Medicaid managed behavioral health carved out insurance company and currently are working now with seven.
0: Wow. Was the change of that a, you've got plenty of time um, to figure this out. This is what's going to be happening in the next few months. Here's all my great instructions on how to do it. (laughs) Or or more likely, was it kind of uh, not that well informed to you?
1: Uh, Kristen and Dave, it, it was planned out for many, many years. Um, oh, good. The, okay. The good. state, the state did provide uh, numerous opportunities uh, about the changes, the purpose of the changes, uh, and were kind of integral in, uh, in in letting the behavioral health community know through various forums, including including our Arizona um, kind of a Council of Human Service Providers. Uh, they were a regular. Uh, in regular attendance at those meetings, discussing the purpose of the change, the rationale for the change, and trying to help uh, organizations prepare for uh the different payment models, the different ways that the plan the new health plans will be working with provider organizations um, and they kind of laid out uh, those changes uh, well in advance. I think what every what took everyone by surprise um the the number of plans that were chosen to kind of provide the Medicaid managed care contracts uh, were seven instead of what we were all anticipating, something along the lines of about four.
2: Mike, did you find that um, other organizations actually did their homework in terms of getting ready for this?
1: I, I think I think the hard part, Dave, is. Because the financial model changed so much
2: mm-hmm.
1: um, from what what we referred to as kind of our block payment methodology, where most organizations received an uh, a monthly allocation uh from the previous um system to a system that really uh promoted the uh concept of fee for service. So with that, the, the, it's very difficult for organizations unless you have significant re- financial resources um, mm-hmm. to be able to transition from a payment methodology where you, you know, you received that one-twelfth block payment um, to a model where now you're relying on a kind of a fee-for-service methodology, because yeah. that 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 requires um, really two two very important things to be happening. One, that behavioral health organizations can submit those claims timely. And secondly, that the behavioral, that the, I'm sorry, the Medicaid managed care organizations are able to pay those claims cleanly and effectively and on time and so forth. Mm
2: -hmm. Mm -hmm.
1: And, um, you know, there's always challenges in any transition to any new system that, uh, you know, that claims don't get paid on time and so forth. So I think that's put a lot of stress on a number of provider organizations in Arizona just because now they're even if everything was clean, they're now having to work in a in a new model that uh is very different from from what they were accustomed to.
2: Right. Did they have to sign seven different contracts? Yes they did. Were the contracts the same? They were not. Okay.
1: So um, it depends so on
2: a- who you were dealing with.
1: Correct. And that really that really was the biggest administrative hurdle is uh, the uh, working with seven different Medicaid managed care organizations and their timelines, their systems, uh, because not only did you have to negotiate contracts with all seven. You also had to make sure that all of your providers were properly credentialed in their system Mm -hmm. and that they were loaded properly because all of that affects the ability to get claims paid timely. Um, Mm -hmm. So all those pieces had to kind of work in tandem. Um, And there were a couple of of the Medicaid managed care plans that uh, struggled in in getting ready for that uh, go live event
2: yeah did the smaller agencies have more trouble difficulty
1: i think over i think across the board the smaller agencies do just because they lack that infrastructure right. um and having all the resources needed to um to negotiate rates to negotiate that you know they when you're smaller you don't have as much leverage
2: right. uh,
1: when you're trying to negotiate rates, so it's a matter of trying to um Make your case and make your case um uh, seven different times yeah. um, so that was the struggle and then the other piece um that was challenging is that in the past um, uh, you would have all of your your clients or members with one plan, and now you're working with seven so you could have your roster of outpatient provider or outpatient members and um you you don't necessarily know until the very last minute what plan they have going forward so that was the rationale that you really had to contract with everyone or try, attempt to contract with everyone so that you could you could uh, appropriately serve all the members that you that you were currently or previously uh uh providing treatment for prior to 101
2: so when comes in so when someone comes in for services uh, do you have to check and see that they're with one of those 7 Correct and So you have to get that uh, done first before you start providing service
1: Correct Yeah eligibility verification um we comes have Sounds like a big uh, challenge. <laughs> it, we yes, we 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 have noticed with uh, a number of provider organizations in Arizona that you know, having to to check, um, it, you know, becomes an administrative expense on all of those cases. You have to check pretty routinely, too. Mm-hmm. Uh, and not that that's not a, I mean, that is part of the responsibilities and the requirements for the provider organizations. It's just something that brand, that's somewhat brand new in the sense that um, you would have to be administratively checking quite a bit. And so, In order to be successful with that, you either had to increase your staffing or you had to work uh, through your electronic health record or your claim system to be able to do some of that verification on eligibility on a more frequent basis.
2: Mm -hmm. Now, I know one of the things that um, Crisis Prep did, because we've worked with you for a while, Um, Yeah, I know you had what you called like-minded partners. Correct, and you still have those um did that help at all in terms of service delivery?
1: I think dave what what helped us quite a bit is we we have a number of um payer strategies where we build on um, being able to serve folks that have coverage through commercial plans. Medicare, Medicare Advantage plans,
2: as mm-hmm. well
1: as the Medicaid system. And, and I, I would just highly recommend, um, as organizations kind of think about their futures, is really trying to develop a diversified payer strategy mm-hmm. so that you're not so dependent on one funding source. Yeah. Uh, because with any change, there's going to be, there's there will be challenges. Um, the difficulty in getting paid timely you know could could have a um, um, uh, financial ramification for any organization, and so we made a decision many many years ago that really our future success and meaning kind of long term planning um you know I often like to look at things at you know ten to fifteen years out as much as I can, and I realize that one thing that we needed to do was to be as diversified from a financial standpoint, um, um, and we were able to implement that uh, many, many years ago, and that required a, you know, kind of a concerted effort on our part to invest in not only hiring the right licensed professionals, providing supervision for uh, associate-level professionals so they could get their independent stas- status, Hiring clinicians and, and staff that could see Medicare or Medicare Advantage individuals and get paid by the Medicare plan successfully, mm-hmm. and then building the infrastructure. You really have to have a strong credentialing team. You have to have a strong billing, third-party payment reimbursement team in, within your organization, or at least have them at arms arms distance that you know you can trust. And then, more importantly. Having a, a, an electronic health record system that works, where you have viability that it can get you can get your claims paid timely, and you know you have a window and you have a kind of a dashboard of what's happening with your claims. Those mm-hmm. are those are the key components that I think have made us uh, somewhat successful during this transition.
0: Okay. I know that you that you guys use um, Next Step Solutions. So if anyone's listening, um, it's NextStepSolutionsInc.com. Um, and they're always my go-to EHR when I get asked by agencies and agency networks, you know, this is one that you need at the top of your list. But one of the things that I found interesting is, yes, your piece about your EHR is important. How how has that been for you in the past compared to now where there are changes like this that are going to happen You don't always know exactly what those changes are going to be, but you need exact requirements to give to an EHR organization so they know how to change things around so you don't have that lapse in payment in terms of their part. So what would you say, you know, was helpful this time around in making sure that that piece of technology was working correctly so that that didn't become an impediment to getting paid?
1: Kristen, great point. And I I must say there's probably a little bit of luck in our timing. Um, I have been familiar with uh, Next Step through a relationship uh, we've had as an organization with a company called Easy Claim, uh, which is kind of in in the Michigan area, along with Next Step Solutions. And a few years ago, one of the challenges that we faced as an organization is we were growing very quickly, but we were growing in a way that made the the previous system that we had uh, really insufficient to meet our needs. And what I mean by that is we were growing outside the walls of our offices. We do a lot of work as an organization in other clinical settings. Examples would be emergency departments. We go to people's homes. We go to skilled nursing and assisted living centers. We go to jails. And so we really needed a robust system that was on demand and not a system that was um, uh, kind of server based at our offices where we would historically have to VPN in to make that connection to our previous electronic health record. So one of the key pieces that I kind of work with our team on here at Crisis Preparation and Recovery a few years ago is I said, listen, if we're going to be successful in the future, we need to have an on-demand robust system that any of our clinical staff and or administrative staff can connect to without the impediments of a server-based VPN dial-in kind of model. And so we did a, a we did really almost a year of research and decided that really Next Step Solutions was the choice for us for a number of reasons. One, it could do all the things that I mentioned. Um, we could submit claims as part of our electronic health record model. So it improved the timeliness of claims, it improved the quality of our claims and, and clean claims going out because we could we could easily see the transition from the, the medical record and the claims as far as matching up. So from an audit compliance perspective, uh, we were in good shape. And our return on one of the big measures that I always look at is if you can, if you can feel comfortable getting a clean claim out the door as close to the date of service as possible, you're going to have much greater success as an organization being successful with any transition that occurs. And so I believe Next Step Solutions was one of our key investments that made our this, this major 10-1 change in the Arizona Medicaid system uh, very successful for us, in part because we had an electronic health record that we could rely on.
0: Yeah, I know that that piece is so, you know, it can be so difficult, and usually I'm walking into an agency that's in the middle of a mess, (laughs) so they're dealing with a mess, and they're dealing with something that's been mandated that's a big change, and they're trying to, you know, get on a a new system, so that can just cause, you know, innumerable headaches um, that, you know, that weren't a planned for part of a a smooth transition.
2: (laughs) Correct you know we're um you know as we go about our business here too i think um we're finding that more and more uh in terms of some of the new demands that are being made by payers in all states you know not not just arizona but mike uh the social work side of me always likes to go back to clinical <laughs> in terms of talking about that for a minute i know once we talked a few weeks ago and you told me that um your staff in, in your clinic are becoming a lot more as acting as case managers versus you know as a big part of what they're doing how how is that working out
1: very well dave we 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 have really just launched um um what we refer to as kind of our social determinants of health clinical model and it relies on strong um kind of almost back to basics, case, good social work case work, good social work case management. And as all the literature and studies have, have shown, that we can really make a difference as organizations, behavioral health organizations in particular, really have been kind of that missing piece when it comes to the the inflation on the physical health side and the costs involved with not having our expertise at the table. And so developing collaborative care models with a strong focus on case management and focusing on the social determinants of health is highly recommended. Um, um, And I think studies have proven that we can make a difference, um, I've always been intrigued that um, you know the costs that are spent on uh, treating folks with chronic care conditions like type two diabetes um, can be um, positively impacted by the time, the empathy, the nudging, uh, the outreach of uh really good clinical social workers in trying to improve the lives of folks, and so from a behavioral health standpoint, we have not always thought of ourselves in in ways that we could impact some of those chronic care conditions um you know we We think of ourselves as you know providing cognitive therapies and providing crisis management and medication yeah, right. services. Yeah. And I really would um, would recommend highly that the skill sets that, una- that a lot of behavioral health organizations across the country already have and are really part of their DNA um, could really be the difference makers in controlling the cost of some of those chronic care conditions. And it's really that mentality and that kind of thinking, I think, that that behavioral health organizations can bring to the payers and can bring to the state organizations and say, you know, it's our work. It's, you know, where we're meeting uh, clients or patients where they are. We're not waiting for them to ring our doorbell to come in for service. We are going to them. We're playing a greater role with primary care. Um, We have the ability and the time to spend um, and understand the challenges that people face that might have really nothing to do with the physical health nature. It's just that there might be barriers that um, the expertise of good social clinical work um, can uncover and try to resolve.
2: Mm-hmm. Now, I know you're using the OQ35 as your assessment tool. Correct. Um, would you say that uh, clinicians, after they've given that assessment, are writing their treatment plans against the assessment in terms of what they find out?
1: you know we're we're relatively um dave relatively new in that process we' we're we're, we're in about a year or so and and um okay. we're 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 still kind of in that that uh, that approach where we're trying to make sure that we're using tools and then trying to impact the um the gear the treatment plans to some of the information that we that we receive from uh some of those tools that uh, that okay. we're having the patients complete and so forth but it's a work in progress and we're you know we continue to kind of showcase that use it as a dashboard because it is important for clinicians to know where patients are in kind of their health journey and and ways that they can improve their uh you know their clinical inter- um interventions to kind of best meet the need
2: yeah i was only asking because i think that as we go down the road more in this model that, um, you know, when people start looking at organizations to be able to demonstrate that whatever they did with a particular patient actually had an effect, you know, over a period of time, you know, and that's what they were paying for, um, becomes more critical in this process. I think everyone's just kind of at that starting point, but that we're, you know, we're gonna have to be in the process of um getting closer to that as we go into twenty and twenty one correct, and I think you well it sounds like you see that happening as you go down the road
1: absolutely. I think it's really important for um uh for organizations really to um, consider ways that they can um have independent measures kind of telling telling them, telling their, their payer sources, how well they're performing. Um, are they making, are they making an impact on people's lives in a positive way? You know, both from a quality perspective, um, are, are people experiencing less distress? Are they, you know, are they making, um, inroads into, um, uh, more greater prevention and solving some of their medical issues in a more in a more effective manner
2: mm-hmm. yeah I, I you know I see that happening too It's just um what I run into sometimes is people don't believe me when they tell when I tell them this is going to happen <laughs> and they want to keep um doing things the same way um mike are you are you working with a bundled rate or are you on a fee for service I think you said fee for service model
1: currently currently we're on a fee for service model dave there are um two plans of the seven uh, that are in addition to that providing kind of a a um a quality uh payment uh if we meet certain uh you know clinical thresholds mm-hmm. um so that is that is something that in addition to the fee for service payment um there's no current penalty it's not kind of an at risk uh, contract yet, although we do believe that, you know, sometime in the near future, there will be moving to more of an at risk model. Um, but it is designed to uh, really have some objective measures in place that we can prove that we are providing a valuable service and that people are getting better and that it's not just a fee for service environment, that okay. we're just delivering services you know, uh, with no indication of how well people are performing and getting better and so forth.
2: You know, the, the companies that are, will give you extra dollars if you meet certain standards, what, what kinds of things are they looking for?
1: Really in this, in, in what we have in place, Um, a number of things. Uh, Because, Dave, as you know, we we do a lot of work in emergency room settings and the Mm -hmm. the impact Mm -hmm. that we have um, about, you know, what levels of care do people need when we see them in a crisis setting. So one of the metrics that uh, several of the plans have in place for us is really how well are we coordinating and collaborating with someone's outpatient team if they have one Um, And if they don't have one, how? What kind of efforts are we um, providing to ensure that they do make a connection to the appropriate behavioral health or even social service organization, depending on what we have, you know, what we've assessed their needs to be?
2: Mm -hmm.
1: Um, So that's a big piece. So what what the plans are looking at um, is how well we're doing that, how well are we coordinating, how well are we collaborating with other organizations to meet that individual's need, and then secondly is, and this is really where the rubber hits the road, how well are our interventions in relationship to the individual coming back into a higher level of care like an emergency department or needing to be rehospitalized or so forth? And although we don't have total control over uh, all of those variables, um it is an area that i'm very interested in because it demonstrates mm-hmm. a kind of a different mindset and how important it is to make um really good referrals and connections and then follow up to make sure people have have um fully established um their services at kind of those lower levels of care when it's appropriate
2: yeah that's almost where the case management piece comes in doesn't it
1: correct absolutely yeah So we have invested, um, we really have invested quite a bit in in bringing up what we refer to as kind of our social determinants of health case management model. Mm -hmm. And Dave, as I've talked with you previously, that is going to be a department that is going to initially focus in on individuals we see in crisis as a way Mm -hmm. to transition them from you know emergency department type settings um to an outpatient model of care and so what we're going to be doing is doing a lot of intensive follow up with with folks making sure that there's no barriers if it's a transportation problem if they have difficulty getting to an a, an available appointment you know we're going to assess um you know what are some of the things occurring in that person's life that are that's contributing to some of their stressors are they having trouble with their living uh, arrangement? Do they have enough food resources? Um, you know, what is their vocational plan? Um, if they're maybe if they have unstable work history or they need some help in uh, kind of retraining programs, do they have a substance use issue? Because we got to address that if, if, if those things are occurring. And is mm. there compliance with whatever if they have had a treatment plan in the past that was successful, what, what got in the way. Um, And so we're looking at compliance uh, to an appropriate plan and addressing all of those social determinants when we can. So literally we might be getting on the phone with the utility company that, you know, that might provide some utility relief uh, to make sure that this person doesn't lose their electricity in the middle of the summer here. And be faced with you know sweltering conditions in their home, mm-hmm. and and that to me buys the I think it it develops a a, a sense of connection with an individual that now realizes hey this group uh, that I'm working with in our case uh, crisis preparation and recovery I I have found a way to connect with this person at a different level than just than just a talk therapy model in the office right um, right and, and so so th- those good You know, it's really good social work skills, I think, that come to play. Um, And so that's what I'm looking for in building in our organization. And uh, hopefully we'll have great success with it.
2: Yeah, no, I think what you described is exactly the direction that um, a value-based model would work. You know, in terms of you're not trying to create every single service yourself. Um, You're going out and find it, as as you guys call it, like-minded partners that can provide some of that care um and it does take away from the our traditional come in and see me for 45 minutes and then we'll see how you're doing next time um it, it really is a different way of looking at it and probably is the way that in a lot of times we should be doing it you know in terms of working with someone and i think often um you know when you get into a kind of a visit model where you come in to see the therapist, that's where you lose quite a few uh, people who come in for help, because a lot of them really, that's difficult for them in terms of, you know, we're going to take a look at you, sort of a thing, rather than figuring out what are the things going on around you that are making it difficult for you to function in the community.
1: Correct. Yeah. I mean, David, you know, you and I both, uh, um, have had, uh, years of experience in training really it's, you know, it's getting back to that fundamental concept of, you know, the person and their environment and what can we be doing as professionals to positively impact a person's environment so that they can be more successful and, um, have a more, you know, sense of purpose and, um, uh, and and with that in mind that we they can have better health outcomes and health scores yeah. which uh which has proven to you know re- reduce the reduce the cost so i would highly recommend any organization to really consider that approach make sure that you have the the necessary the necessary um uh, billing codes and contracts in place so that you can develop that type of model Mm-hmm. and really develop a partnership with the payers in a way that says hey listen you know if you identify you know the the 100 or 150 most um you know moderate to high complex members that this model could uh, have an impact um, you know, these are the this is the kind of the way to start. For, at least this is what we what we're putting in in place with some of the payers, and we we hope that the, it will be very successful and that the patients will end up with uh, with better health outcomes.
2: No, I I think you're right, Mike, and I think that is the direction you're going. I can see. I I already know Crisis Prep has a good start on this, and um, we'll continue working on it. Kristen, I think we should thank Mike for visiting with us today.
0: <laughs> well, one thing I want to check really quick, Mike, is I always ask someone, you know, why they got into the field of mental health. So can we close on on that note, since we have so many people in different areas of mental health that, that are thinking about getting into the career? It's nice to hear from someone in your position as to why this was attractive to you. <laughs>
2: Well, this
1: this really was the perfect uh, vocation and career for me. And thank you, Kristen, for that uh, that question because I remember, um, you know, my mom was always a big person in my life. Encouraged me to kind of go this path. Um, um, I've always had the patience and the interest and the time to try to try to make a difference, not only with individuals but also in 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 uh, my community. In one big area, I was sitting sitting at my undergraduate celebration for graduation back in the early 90s, and I was asked by a visiting professor uh, what my plans were, and I didn't really know at the time, you know, as a a recent undergrad, and um, I said, you know, maybe I'm thinking of going to law school, you know, because I I got my bachelor's (laughs) in political science, and he looked at me with kind of a dismayed look on his face. He said, Mike, you really need to be a social worker. And it was really from that point on, you know, okay. that uh, that was the path for me. And um, it's really been, I'm very thankful and I have a lot of appreciation. I have wonderful colleagues, both at crisis preparation and recovery and, and in the Arizona market and really have great partners, um, you know, one of, uh, Uh, you know, just working with Dave and Darren and all the folks at Next Step Solutions. It's really been terrific uh, partnerships and and activities that we've been involved with over the years that keeps me motivated, you know, and I'm excited Mm -hmm. about the future. Good. That's,
0: listen, any listener that hears that, that's thinking about getting into mental health, please take what Mike just said to heart. He's excited about the future. (laughs) Mike, please tell our listeners where they can find out more about you.
1: Well, thanks again for the time. Um, My name is Michael Boylan, and I am the Chief Executive Officer at Crisis Preparation and Recovery. We are located in Tempe, Arizona, and you can uh, look me up. My um, information is available through our website, and you can go to at www.crisisprepandrecovery.com.
0: Great, thanks so much for coming on.
1: Thank you, Kristen. Thank you, Dave.
0: Yeah, thanks, Dave. You're welcome, Mike. (laughs) And thank you to our listeners for tuning in to one of our new series, Mental Health Business, on Mental Health News Radio. Thanks so much for listening to Mental Health News Radio. Our podcast can be found on iTunes, Stitcher, and hundreds of other podcast apps. Or you can visit our website at mentalhealthnewsradio.com. If you have a question or would like to be a guest, become a podcaster on our network, or join the amazing organizations that help keep us on the air, please email us at info at mhnrnetwork.com. Get ready for that special goodbye from our resident therapy dog, Miles, and a special thanks to Emily Sohn for letting us use her incredible song, Cordial, for our podcast music. Listen to the full song on SoundCloud at Emily.so-N-N-E. <S-O-N-N-E> don't be surprised when I don't hate on you, girl. After all, we promised we'd be cordial. Sometimes in you I can fight.
2: Good boy.